the optimal life. Miss Power, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mr. Haber. Uh, so talk to us. You are an adjunct instructor of psychiatry at Georgetown Medical Center. Yes, what exactly are I you am. teaching at Georgetown? What do you do? I teach trauma-informed medical care, which is based on a research project that went really well. It showed that if first, if your primary care providers and their staff, if docs and their staff had a different understanding of the impact of overwhelming events on people, they treated them better and everybody had a better time and patients complied and got better faster. So what are the things that you're teaching your students? What do you guys focus on? Well, that program is based on someone else's content. Uh, but basically, it's the kind of thing that, that we teach that aligns with that is that trauma is more than abuse and neglect. You know, people think about who's the person who's got trauma. Well, there are racial and gender-based stereotypes that we need to deal with because almost everybody thought at first it would be a person of color who was well endowed in the, in the chest area who had loud perfume on. And I'm going, well, what about the old white ladies who just sit there and don't say anything but do everything you want them to? What's the chance they've had history of trauma? Oh, no, no, no. And I said, okay, let's break this down. So we help them understand, and I do this in my own work, although from a slightly different perspective, anything that so overwhelms a person that they think they might die or lose their mind or be badly injured, the brain registers as traumatic. Anything. And what are some of the things that we can do then when the brain registers that? What's the first thing somebody should do once that registration occurs? Well, if you're the person to whom it's happening, if you can remember to breathe, it helps a lot. Breathing helps re-regulate a lot of things. Um, and then once something like that happens, again, it will depend on your age. If it's a small child, they should run to the nearest adult who will hold them and let them shake and shiver and cry until they've got it out of their system. If you're an adult and don't have one, someone to do that, basically what you need. And, and we found this in our company as we did the nation's first draft of disaster mental health programs that people need coffee, comfort, and connection till they can re-regulate. Then you can find out, do they need therapy or not? But there's a huge gap. So back to the example of the child. So if, if you're the parent in that example or the adult and the child comes running into your arms and they are having a tantrum and they're crying and you're saying, let, them, let it out of their system, what happens to the child who who's, where the adult doesn't let it out of their system and, and thwarts it and stops them and tells them to stop being a baby. Well, I'm really, there's a lot of awful stuff that can happen. You know that as well as I do. One is they stuff it and anything you stuff is going to come out sooner or later. The second thing is their brain is still in a state of, of neurobiological activation. They're not going to learn. Their learning is stalled. Whether they are frozen in fear or crying like a rat eating onions, their development is stalled. And until they can re-regulate and you can help them realize that they are, in fact, fairly safe um, and that they, they can survive this discomfort, um, they are, they're basically not going to learn anything emotionally. Their, their psychosocial development, their ability to manage conflict is thwarted. Their ability to communicate well is thwarted. Their ability to regulate their emotions is thwarted. It is and it's subtle. You might you might perform really well in school, but you may have absolutely no skills dealing with conflict or emotion or differences in power, um, the things that, that support anti-bullying and civil behavior. And then those issues come full full force and full effect as these children get older? 
Uh-huh. And our living li- life throws us crap all the time. Does right? it? Ever- and then at some point, there's a breaking point, and these children who are now adults who weren't able to share those emotions and get them out, they probably have these these crazy moments then at that point. They probably do. Many of them do. And some of them are the crazy moments of domestic violence. Some of them are the crazy moments of random or targeted shootings. Some of them are the crazy moments of burning things down. It's if you don't have the skills to deal with the everyday discomforts, you certainly won't have the skills to deal with being overwhelmed by things that happen to you. You mentioned the shootings and some of these could lead to horrific events and acts. And that's one of the reasons I really wanted to bring you on, because I see in your bio, one of the things you talk about is uh, bad news sells. We love bad news as a society. We love the crimes. We're obsessed with serial killers, car crashes, fires, murders, hit and runs. The list goes on and on. So let's dig into some of that exactly. Why does bad news sell and why are we so obsessed with it? I used to write for a newspaper. I was a stringer a long time ago. And even back in the early 70s, I was hearing, if it bleeds, it leads. So number one, if you think about the business end of a news cycle, and I spent a brief stint as a vice president of sales and marketing in a broadcast syndication company 100 years ago, we were always looking for things that would get and hold viewers' attention. That's not the good news stories. That's not the so-and-so saved somebody from dying in an icy pond story so much, although it's getting a little bit better. still not much. And so because it captured viewers' attentions and attention and they watched longer, the horrific became the traffic of media. But let me just stop you real quick, Elizabeth. Why is the horrific something that we in our minds are so enamored with uh, versus... Because we wouldn't be enamored with it if it was happening to us in real life. But we're enamored with it when we're at arm's length in the comfort of our own room, watching the Idaho murder uh, unfold and four students slain. Why is that? Well, it's neurobiological. I mean, I hate to say that because I really sometimes, you know, everything is a blend of brain and learning. If you think about your brain, your brain has one basic job, and that is to keep your body alive. If your body's not alive, nothing else is going to matter. Learning, feelings, none of that matters. So its basic prime directive is survival. Part of what it does when it wires up these connections based on horrific things is they produce a strong chemical reaction. The brain wants us to remember those events so that we don't have them happen again. So it's a push me, pull you kind of thing. I need to see it. I need to see those 9 million pictures of the 9-11 attacks. I need to see the 9,000 pictures of those murders in Idaho. It fascinates me. It really changes my chemistry. But I need to see them because I don't want them to happen again. That's the part we miss. We get fascinated at the visual and visceral level. Our brain is trying to say to us, don't let this happen again. But One we of the see reasons- it. I'm sorry. Go ahead. One of the reasons we find ourselves feeling frightened sometimes is our brain is saying, oh, wait, wait, wait. Remember the last time you were here? The bad thing happened. You don't want to do this again. We see it, yet then it's it's almost like it's never enough, right? Because That's then the correct. next night on the news is on, and then the, the next day you're pulling up Nancy Grace on the podcast, and then you're watching mm-hmm. a, a, a Dateline, and then you're watching Fox, CNN, every you know, 
it's almost like we get into these things where we've seen it and we keep seeing the same thing over and over, yet we still can't seem to get enough. I would challenge people to practice turning it off or going to smooth music or something soothing because until we train the brain to enjoy being soothed without the use of alcohol or drugs or addictive processes, as much as we like watching it get jacked up, we really are held captive by that process. So what is happening to us? We're held captive and we're marinating in negativity. What are the things now that are happening to us in this marination state? Well, a lot of it is you can you begin to recognize there's another phenomenon um, that's genetic. It's called the epigenetics of trauma. Whatever happened to your ancestors was kind of written on their DNA, the impact of that. You inherit that. It doesn't have to express, but you come in with a load that automatically disinclines you to be able to be have the highest level of emotional intelligence possible. So if you have generations that have grown up with war and famine and uh, economic injury and structural racism and structural violence and structural stigma, they come in, their children come in with a load with a load for that. So we see that acting out and we see it strengthening across generations to some extent. We get to choose. Do we counteract that or do we keep it going? Hmm. So let me see if I understand what you're saying. You're saying that the offspring of people that have gone through difficult, horrific events themselves in decades and centuries prior, their offspring now are coming into this world predisposed to act out in similar atrocities when there are negative things occurring, when they're when they're being sucked into the marination. Yes, that is exactly what I'm saying. And you say we saying- could continue to either let it go on or we could correct its course. If we correct its course, how do you see us doing that? Well, about a year and a half ago, we sat down and did a large scale review and discovered that the skills for social emotional learning, which are self-awareness, self-regulation, or the ability to manage one's feelings, social awareness, social skills, empathy, and decision-making, those are the same skills and emotional intelligence, which research has shown over and over and over again, causes more more success at work and better relationships. Those same skills are the skills required to recover from traumatic experiences. We're teaching trauma responsive emotional intelligence because we know everybody wants better jobs and better relationships. Nobody wants to be diagnosed with a mental illness. Let's jack those skills up as high as we can, which will also help relieve a little bit of the load on the clinicians for whom people, when people really need clinical services. But we can begin to use the, 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 the absolute miracle of neuroplasticity and learning to help us redirect ourselves away from a, from a generational set of what some people call generational curses. So you're using emotional intelligence, which I find fascinating. You have, what, what is it, like nine subcategories? Is that correct? Yeah, that's we teach nine different categories in the trauma-responsive system, yeah. What are those nine categories? Well, an impact-based definition. The symptoms don't care about the cause, so let's quit talking about the name of the trauma and look at what the impact we're seeing is in a person's life. You can recognize somebody who's got a history of something overwhelming. You don't need to know the name. What's, we an, talk example about of What's an example of a label in, in that regard? Sure. An example of a label is uh, post-traumatic stress or post-traumatic stress disorder. Okay. What we might talk about the impact is, you know, she's really jumpy. 
she reacts like a human seismograph to everything. And she goes from zip to being furious in about 20, in about a, a millionth of a second. It seems to be really hard for her to manage certain kinds of situations like, like having her back to a door, which is more descriptive and more helpful. Okay. So Who would you be less putting, frightened instead of? La instead of labeling it, you just recognize the issue at hand. The behavior, the impact, the behavior. where you're seeing impact that is probably related to something traumatic. So the impact-based definition is important. We teach about elastic emotions, which is self-regulation. But people, my, people in my neighborhood don't talk about self-regulation. They'd be more likely to talk about elastic emotions. What are, what are the emotions we feel? How do we know we're feeling that particular emotion? There's some really beautiful research on that. And what do we do to be able to turn it up and down? When do 90% of the people that aren't hospitalized for mental illness feel that? And what do they do with it? We teach those skills. We also teach about finding connections. Let me just finding stop you again, Elizabeth. I'm sorry. Sir? Let me just let me just interject. You said there's a lot of good, beautiful research on that yeah. particular skill set about knowing what kind of emotions we're feeling. What what's some of the research, if you don't mind? Um, it's really interesting. If your viewers will Google or listeners will Google where do people feel emotions in their body and look for images? They'll find a set of maps of people that look like thermographic maps. The research these folks have been doing out of Finland asks people to look at um, situations or scenarios that everyone agrees most people would feel disgust. And they ask people to tell them where in your bodies do you feel activated, which they color red and yellow and orange for degrees of activation. And where do you feel deactivated, which is blue and black. So you get these maps of activation and deactivation associated with different feelings. They have tested this across multiple cultures, multiple populations. And so far it seems universal. And where are those, where are those images being shown the most? Where is it the most prevalent? The first place I saw it, ironically enough, was Wired magazine. And what I'm talking internally, where if you're able to look inside, are we feeling emotions in our gut, in our foot, oh, in all our over, head? all over our feet, our hands, our legs, our belly, our groin, our chest, our head. It shows how what's what's activated and deactivated all over the body. So you have this whole body map, and you can stop and say, "Wait a minute, I just tasted something I really didn't like." Mm -hmm. Which of these matches where I feel that? Is it likely to be disgust? Can I can I look at disgust? Yeah, yeah, I feel disgust. Yeah, I feel activated in that place. Interesting. And now, are there places in the body where there's more negative emotions typically found versus positive, or is it per um, individual? It's it's basically based on their charts. Most negative emotions, as I remember, I'm doing this part from memory, so y'all go out and look this up and figure it out. Um, it seems that the hands and the chest and the head feel are are, are very activated. Mm. The feet are activated in anger, but not in other negative emotions. So it debates, it depends on the emotion. Interesting. Okay. Anyways, I rudely interrupted you. So continue on, please. On, on That's the, okay. More of your emotional intelligence. Now, th again, this comes from the Trauma Informed Academy. We'll have that linked in the show notes. This is your uh, company. This is your business model. Yeah. Um, so you're talking about blending emotional intelligence skills uh, with or, or kind of mitigating trauma through emotional intelligence. Yeah. Especially if you add what we know about trauma psychology and about the impact of trauma, it becomes a lot easier to think about it. 
we think that there are three skills and we teach all three in the trauma-informed academy um, that come out of self-psychology, which is Kohut's work. Basically, one is managing feelings, elastic emotions. The second is using interconnections, positive interconnections, the ones we can rely on in even in their absence. Like I could say to you, hey, Brian, um, what, Nate, what's your favorite food? How did it get to be your favorite food? Uh, I would just, say I would say pizza. Yeah, and how did it get to be your favorite food, man? Um, how uh, probably from eating a lot of pizza as a kid. And what's your favorite pizza? Pepperoni. Yeah, and I wish you could see. Even though it's slight, you're beginning to smile a little bit. <laughs> what? So what happens to us is, in addition to the memory of all the horrific things and all the terrifying things, we have these memories of these strong, positive interconnections. I can think about banana pudding, and man, I, I just break out in a big one. Look at her. She can't stop I'm, smiling. Holy cow. Yeah, that's that. exactly right. There you go. And there are all these images I have. We can choose like, to build. Uh, do you like banana bread? No, just banana pudding. Just banana pudding. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, man. Yeah. Homemade banana pudding from scratch. Mm. But there are all of these memories we have about food, about recipes, about playlists, about tattoos, about pieces of clothing that we can use to strengthen ourself and strengthen the memories of the things that bring us happiness. We can strengthen those as much as the other side is strengthened. We don't get rid of the other side. We add to it. So if I'm following, give us an example of something that you do in that context where you're taking a positive emotion and offsetting against some of the negative emotions. How, how do you do it? You just you just focus on the positive ones at least as much as you do the negative ones. So somebody's in like a, a session with you or with your team? Yeah, the first thing we do is we ask them to build that library of positive emotions to begin with. You don't tear somebody apart with their horrific feelings. And we, in fact, we don't really focus on those much at all because we know people do already. I certainly did. I was a, I was a wretched human being for a long time. I had a 55-gallon barrel of poo that I carried around very proudly, and there was an empty barrel on the other side that was all the happiness. I just couldn't get to it. I wasn't willing to think about it. I thought I had to get rid of my 55 gallon of ugliness to have mm. a 55 gallon barrel of happiness. And I didn't, I need both of them. What was making it, what was making it such a heavy uh, pile oy. of ugliness for you? Oy, oy. Um, things for which there were no perpetrators to begin with. We moved a lot when I was an infant because my father was in the military. It was post-World War II in Korea. Um, he got jobs and he got promoted. And back then, if you got a job and got a promotion, you had to move, you just went. Then he died of cancer before I was three. Then I had a rare disease at four that put me in, in, out in twilight for six weeks. Then my knees began to dislocate and, and on their own anytime, even in my sleep. So it was a childhood that had a lot of terrifying time in it. Do you that remember your dad perfect. or are you too young? You don't remember your father. I, no, I, don't I don't remember him at all. I yeah. have maybe two memories that might be him. Mm, might be. And you're not sure for 100%. No, huh? Yeah. And then you said that you would be in bed and your knees as a little five, six year old, you would be dislocating. Yeah. Yeah. All my, my knees, my hips, my shoulders all dislocate. The knees started first. So you had to carry that with you throughout uh -huh. your entire it, adolescence. Still I do now, but I've, I've made a different kind of peace with it. I can. And it was, it was, making you, it was making you resentful. Is that what was happening? 
It was making me terrified. I never knew when I was going to find myself in sudden, unexpected pain flung to the floor, uh, being accused by some of doing it to get attention, uh, terrifying my family. They all held their breath waiting for me to end up on the floor with the knee out. Mm. So that obviously impacted your day-to-day emotional state every single day. Oh, I learned I learned nothing about managing my feelings. You learned nothing. I learned how not to be present. I learned how to dissociate very early in life. And I missed most of my own growing up. I have some memories of things, but most of it I missed just because I was too busy trying to cope with being terrified all the time. And that, of you- course, made me the perfect prey for every predator around because I was but- invisible. That made you the most perfect prey so that you're you're insinuating that there was then people in your lives that were mistreating you. Yeah, there were. And and it was, you know, it's I think any time a child, any time a vulnerable person becomes invisible to the other people around them, either because folks were frightened of them, maybe someone's homeless um, or maybe because they're afraid of what might happen, I might go down. And And there's all kinds of reasons that people become invisible, the old, the young people with disabilities, people of different ethnicities, people of different races, people Mm. of different persuasions. When we become invisible, we're suddenly we're perfect prey for everybody. So you became invisible and then you were abused. It sounds like. Yeah, exactly. But it didn't start with the abuse. That's the thing people forget. I had a lot of clinicians tell me, Oh, you must've been abused. I'm going, well, yeah, but that's not the beginning. I want to work on the beginning. Yeah. What what was the beginning? The beginning was the inability to really connect to my family because of all the moves. I learned early on that if I could be not seen and not heard, maybe my family wouldn't be so angry and so upset about all the, all the boxes boxes relates to moving. So I just didn't have the time to learn the skills of how to manage my feelings, how to identify them. I grew up in Appalachia. We feel good. We feel bad. That's it. Our face always looks the same because if I show you what I feel, you might use it against me. And then you took all of this ultimately 55 pound barrel of poo, as you call it, into your adult life. Sure, I did. And you were marinating in the the terror, the hopelessness, all of the above. Oh, all of it. Being a victim, being being terrified. Nobody liked me. I was I was angry at everything and everybody. I was I was a pretty miserable ball of human being until what uh, age? it affected my work. It affected my relationships. It affected everything I did until what age did you finally start saying, all right, enough's enough. I need to turn this thing around. I began to turn it around in my thirties. And I would say it's, I'm pretty sure as far as I've come, I'll always have that far to go again. But I think, I think what I've been able to build for myself and the service I've been able to be to others. I mean, the work that we do, it's on every con- on every continent except Antarctica. I think I think I have not only been able to see some redemption of my own life, but help others as well. And the thing is, is what we do is grounded in evidence. It's not just my history. It's not just the voice of my lived experience. What was the big thing for you in your thirties? That what was that first big shift where you were like, okay. I'm putting this move into action to mitigate some of this, this sadness. Separating feelings from fact and beginning to remember the positive things in my life and deciding I had been taught I had to get rid of all the negative. You never get rid of it. You can only metabolize it, but I could add positive choices. 
And I could make that a deliberate, conscious effort. What was the positive choice that you made? What was that feeling? Uh, the tra- was it, it wasn't the banana pudding, was it? Well, it helped. The banana pudding <laughs> helped a lot. <laughs> so, did, so did remembering my Aunt Floyd's coconut cake. I, uh, I came up with this wild idea. I w- I've been working on the issue of change, which is where I started my career in a way, that the feelings of change are perfectly normal, but they're not the facts of change. And that we only feel good about change when we choose it and when we make some sense out of it. And so I began to work on how can I recognize that the feelings aren't the facts? And then I thought, I have zero experience. I've got this 50-gallon barrel that's empty. that's waiting for me to fill it up with some of the good stuff that has happened. Mm. And I began to practice. Uh, I created a, a model called the victory cycle. I wish I'd named it something different, but I didn't. So there you have it which is the days of the week to which is attached a color for each and a feeling for each, a feeling quality. And I began to say, what am I feeling? Well, right this minute, I feel kind of stupid. I feel kind of, I feel a little, a little awkward. What do I want to feel? I want to feel peace. That's the feeling that comes with today. When is the time in my life that I felt peace before? Okay, I got it. And I, I don't know. I feel like my face just busted. Yeah, you, did. You, just, you can't stop smiling. I saw your those bright white teeth again. So. Yeah, thank you. I, I work on those bright whites. Um, <laughs> when have I felt it before? And I remember the time when I felt peace before. And what's the color associated with it? And where do I see it? Well, the color's blue. I see it in your shirt. I see it in the icons on my screen. I see it in the things around my office. So I began to create really strong associations with colors and positive feelings. And I just practiced it. I used to teach that at AT&T Information Systems. That was 100 years ago. Mm. I just built, I just made deposits in that library, man, over and over and over again. And I still do. Okay. And that's kind of where we left off when you were talking about your program at the Trauma Informed Academy. So you're doing the, you talked about the elastic emotions. You're talking about positivity over negativity. Let's pick up where you left off. Sure. We talk about opening communication because one of the things that traumatic experiences do is they shut down the expressive and receptive language centers in the brain. So we talk a little bit about how to open those up. We talk about sustaining vitality instead of managing vicarious trauma. We want to talk about what we want instead of what we don't want. I don't want burnout and I don't want vicarious trauma. I'd rather sustain my vitality. So we frame it that way. We talk about changing lenses, which is reframing, which is a key skill in self-awareness and in relationships and in decision-making and creative problem-solving, which is another side of decision-making. We talk about... um, uh, secret strengths, because one of the things that happens, especially if you end up uh, receiving care for whatever's going on, you end up focusing on your pathologies and not on your strengths. There are not, well, there are now finally, they're not used in the mental health system. In the mental health system, the assessments that you take are to find out what's wrong with you, what your pathologies are. There's nothing to find out what your strengths are, or what assets you bring that you can leverage against the trauma, against whatever's going on. Uh, we use authentichappiness.org as a place to find assessments for positivity and recommend that people find out what are your strengths? What do you bring to the party? And we help people begin to think about the strengths, how to flip the, uh, the difficulties and the strengths. For example, one of the things I would say about myself, a, 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 path, a, a thing that people laid pathology is that I was, I was stubborn. I was resistant. I was angry. Well, okay, what if that's really persistence and drag? (laughs) 
<laughs> it's persistence dressed up in a costume. Right. I'm the most persistent person you'll find. So a lot of that stuff, it sounds like, is that you're taking a negative mindset and you're flipping it. You're flipping it to the other side of the coin and you're really focusing on all the positives, all the silver linings that are that can be found in there. Yeah, absolutely, Nate. And see, here's the deal. Whatever trauma we inherit from our ancestors, whatever crap that we end up with in this life, not only does it bring us difficulties, it also brings us strengths and growth if we let it. It's not just the negative stuff. I didn't just get joints that dislocated from my family genetics. I also got this keen mind and this critically sharp ability to think and think well. And you probably wouldn't be sitting here talking to me right now because you would have chosen a different path. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And instead you chose this mental health, psych psychiatry, psychology path. As we so often do, we find something that was causing us pain and we want to turn it into something positive. We do. And here's the cool thing. I teach psychiatry for that one program with a master's in education. My master's is in human resources development or adult learning. I'm an instructional designer and an educator because I think, as did Maslow, uh, that learning and therapy are perilously close. Why should it be called a mental disorder if it's a learning disability, if it's a skill, if it's a skills gap? If I don't, if I have a skills gap and I can close that first, then we can see what's left over that needs a different kind of attention. And Elizabeth, why do they not teach this emotional intelligence stuff in our school systems? They do, but here's a problem I have with it, Nate. They teach it in a number of elementary schools. There are some factions in our culture that feel like that it's teaching people to be woke, which some people object to. It's really teaching people basic skills for being a human being. What you do with it's different. Uh, but in the school systems, it's often taught by clinicians and social workers. It shouldn't be. This is the stuff that if things are good enough at home, you learn at home. It should be taught by the PTA, by parents. It should be practiced by everybody. It's not going to hurt anybody. It's only going to better all of our abilities to be successful. But we can find health. We can find mental wellness or mental health to the realm of pathology so that we have this very distorted view of who does what and how it happens. Here's an example. Yeah. 24 million prescri prescriptions were written for sertraline or Zoloft in 2018. Half of them could be unwritten if people had regular relationship and exercise. So let's say that we need 12 million appointments for therapy every month. Well, no, we need actually 36 million because you should see somebody three times a month for it to really work. It takes 10 years to become a therapist. There are never going to be enough counselors in this world to fill that need. But we could begin to focus on increasing our mental wellness, our mental health by learning these skills, which we can learn as part of personal and professional development and should not learn as part of curing or managing mental illness because they are not about mental illness. They are the things that if our families were good enough, if we had less structural racism and gender bias, less class, less of the structures that we have that keep people in trauma, that should be taught as a part of our normal human being life. I think emotional intelligence is one of the most important things that we can learn about ourselves. Because I agree. It, it is, it is 
included and it's involved in every aspect of our life. Indeed from, it is. From education and philosophy to emotions, yeah. feelings, interpersonal connections, relationships, it, it's all encompassing. And Absolutely. we just don't focus on when I saw that this is your thing. I mean, if you go to, and we'll link you in the show notes here, everyone, if you want to take a look at elizabethpower.com, it's in the show notes. You can see all about uh, my guest here today. She's got links to her website. She's got links to some of her programs, epowerandassociates.com, which I think is like kind of the parent company. And yeah. it looks like you've done, a, I mean, you've been doing a lot of stuff with, with Wall Street Journal, NPR, NBC News. Is it all focused around this trauma stuff? It's focused on three things, change, trauma, and dissociation, because I think one of the key challenges we face in this culture is the degree to which we just disconnect or dissociate on a regular basis. Part of this notion of spending our time glued to the TV, keeping trauma at arm's length, keeps us from experiencing the true horrors of it, which might be good, but if we disconnect from it, how do we ever face enough discomfort to choose something different? Mm. Powerful stuff. Uh, we're getting close to finishing up. I do have another question. Somebody that's experienced some form of trauma, it doesn't even have to be significant, right? I mean, there's so many different levels and for each person, trauma is trauma or bad feelings are bad feelings. It doesn't, it's, one yeah. person might be going through a real horrific event and someone else might not, but in their world, it still feels heavy. So um, you've gone through some trauma and then all of a sudden that trigger event happens. Something somebody says something that reminds you of a past trauma, something somebody does something that reminds you. I know you said breathe, but how do you manage those feelings and thoughts and emotions? Here it is. I'm now feeling myself getting agitated. How do you kind of mitigate those? Well, I think first of all, if you're gonna talk to yourself, make it count. Because you know, I mean, the thing is, um, my neighbors up the street were lost boys from the lost Sudan. My neighbor down the street was a Vietnam era veteran. And on the 4th of July, they have radically different reactions to the fireworks. The guy down the street, I like to take him a macaroni and cheese casserole and, you know, put it by his door so he can get it when he feels safe enough to do so. And I said to him, get a pill and go in your closet. Just enjoy the fact that you can retreat from what used to terrify you so much. And when it happens, talk to yourself, remind yourself to talk to yourself the way you would have hoped a loving adult might have talked to you as a child, reassuring, soothing, calming. And to the kids up the street, I said, celebrate, celebrate all you want to, because you associate this with good fortune and good luck, not with the horrors of war. Go for it. Even though they had both been exposed to the same kind of initial event, artillery, rockets, rifle fire, their different reactions were based on different meanings. Mm. So I would say when you begin to see, as I am seeing right now, a branch begin to fall from the ice. It's like, okay, all right. Okay. I'm here. It's not going to land on the house. I'll be all right. We can get this cut up. I've got the tools I need. This will be okay. I can make this work. If you're going to talk to yourself and I know you do make it count. That's beautiful. Beautiful advice. Uh, let's finish and it the, up. And with... the limb is down. The limb <laughs> is okay. now down. And you're Okay. <laughs> Uh, let's, and that's a perfect way to finish this 
powerful conversation, stimulating conversation that we've had. Let me, let's me let finish it off with your book. Tell us a little about Healer, Reducing Crises, and where else you want people to find you online. Well, if people like to read, I recommend Healer, Reducing Crises because it's everything we teach and talk about written in a casual, easy-to-read way. You can find it on Amazon, both in print and in Kindle, and even in Audible, and I read it, so you've got my dulcet tones to listen to. Mm-hmm. If you're interested in our programs, the best thing to do is go out to traumainformedcare.com. That's where we have uh, all of our programs offered. If you want to just poke around, go to elizabethpower.com and have a good time digging around and reach out and let me know what I can do for you. By the way, I am not the British romance novelist of the same name. Mm. Well, we will make sure we link several of those in the show notes, guys. If you want to learn more, like we said, go to her website. You could work with her and her team. And uh, really appreciate you uh, uh, coming on today to share light into some of this really important topic. So thank you very much. Thanks so much, Nate. I'm delighted to spend time with your listeners, and I'll talk to you later.